VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, July the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams has produced the program on this beautiful Thursday. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So today, I'm broadcasting for the first time ever from my home. And what happened about 30 seconds prior to going live this morning? The connection dropped. So my apologies. I'll be the gremlin, the glitch in the matrix at the moment. But away we go. Certainly glad to be back in the chair. Missed a lot while I was away, but hopefully you can help fill in the blanks with your contribution to the program this morning. So another hot day in the offing. While I was away, I understand the weather was simply beautiful. Another hot, humid day on the way for uh, metro region. Some 30 degrees. It'll feel like 30 degrees. And you've all seen the stories. Heat warnings across the country and around the world. If you'd like to chime in on what you've seen, if you've got family in some of these places that are being affected, we look forward to speaking with you. One thing, and even for the members or the residents of our own care facilities here in the province, we've learned an awful lot in the last number of years, whether it be about the importance of visitation and the restrictions of what they've meant for the families and the residents themselves. But most importantly, in public buildings, schools, care facilities, from personal care homes all the way to acute care, is have we done enough to install the air filtration and air purification systems, which is not just about this particular virus. It's about clean, breathable air that respects the dignity and the healthy uh, nature of our students, seniors alike, so we wonder where we are on that front. We know that there was a sole source contract for the air filtration systems in the province of schools, and we can take it on if you're into it. But another warm day, to say the very least, on tap for us. Well, I tuned in a little bit yesterday to hear Linda Swain. And she mentioned off the top of the program that we do indeed have a Stanley Cup parade coming to town. August 22nd is the scheduled date for young Alex Nook, member of the Colorado Avalanche Stanley Cup championship team, bringing the cup to town. Now, there's plans for a parade. Some of the details are still in the works, but that's going to be a real welcome relief for the folks who are able to participate in the parade and parade watchers along the potential route for the Stanley Cup to be on display for the first time, third time here in this province. On that note, we spend a lot of time, or I guess I do, spend a lot of time talking about Alex Newhook and Dawson Mercer, and rightfully so. But they're not the only hockey players from this province doing great things. Not the only athletes doing great things from this province. Clark Bishop, also from St. John's, just signed a contract with the Calgary Flames. This is his third stop. He was with the Carolina Hurricanes for five years. Then he was playing with the Ottawa Senators. He has signed a deal with the Calgary Flames. Go get him, Bish. Great young fella. Great family. Also, you know what we're like. We look for connections of this province come hell or high water. Josh Norris, who's going to be a tremendous, if not already a tremendous NHLer. His dad, Dwayne, from town, his family from town. Dwayne, a contemporary of mine. Josh just signs an eight-year deal with the senator, $63.6 million. Good for him. Away we go. Speaking of some athletic review, because I was away, so I've had this pent-up want to talk about some of the achievements. We know that we have produced some of the best fast-pitch softball players in the world. Yet again, another bunch of the young fellas from this province named to the national team going to be competing in the World Cup in November in New Zealand. Shane Bolden, Sean Cleary, Bradley Ezekiel, Ezekiel, that's how they pronounce it, pardon me, Jason Hill and Colin Walsh, they are headed down under to New Zealand. I wonder how many more Hall of Famers, joining the likes of Colin Abbott, are going to be a member of that lauded uh, group when their careers are done. 
Also while I was away, the Rugby Atlantics. The men's under-17 and 19s win gold at the Atlantics. For the first time ever, we put teams in the under-15 women's and men's. The women took home a bronze. The men took home a silver medal. So, again, in the world of rugby, we're pretty fantastic. And Soccer Atlantics. I'm not so sure how many people have followed along with minor soccer this particular summer, but in the 8 8 division age divisions at the Atlantics. We won five of them. That's absolutely extraordinary. Gone are the days of simply playing slog ball. We got the skill and the talent and the depth was pushed in good stead. Okay, let's keep going. So for the last couple of weeks, I was away on a holiday, a scheduled holiday, a break from work, and I was really pleased to have it. I know I missed a lot. Now again, we're going to need your support to get back in to action here. But the last three days, I've been away, and Linda Swain thankfully covered for me. Thank you very much, Linda. She does a tremendous job. And Tim Powers, who sat in for a while, also terrific, sitting in this chair. I have COVID. Now, this is not in an effort to look for any, oh, you poor soul, because that's not the intention at all. You know, you'd think after all these months and years, I would have come to a better realization about the COVID conversation. So... You get a better perspective when you get it. And I'm not telling you I was on my deathbed because I was not. I felt pretty terrible for a few days. The real reason unable to do the show was with the just extraordinary cough and the sore throat. Don't think I could have got through it. Now, I might sound a bit congested today, but I feel a lot better. Thankfully so. I think the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, the social scientists had a better uh, perspective on this than the political scientists. We had arrived, and probably some months ago, arrived at a fairly ugly societal spot. You know, it's probably worth reconsidering some of the way we talk about the virus. It's not gone. People are tired of it. I understand that. Just because you're tired of it doesn't mean that it's gone away forever. So, you know, the comments of, it's just the cold, it might be just the cold for you. The comments regarding vaccination and the fact that it's got a survival rate of 99 point whatever percent of survival, okay. But that's a pretty weird bar to set, whether or not it's absolutely going to kill you. So when someone has maybe immunocompromised family or seniors in their home or a young child at risk, maybe, just maybe, as we all just tried to get through this bloody pandemic, it's worth realizing that it hits everybody different, and everybody's life circumstance is different. It hit me different than it hit my wife. It hit me different than it hit some of my friends. It hit me different than it probably hit you. My life circumstance and exposure to others what might be at heightened risk might be different from yours. So whether you're in the camp of it's just a call, will everyone shut up and move on, or you're in the it's 99.9% survivable, or you're looking forward to getting your next booster, or you're not, some of these things, I think to our collective good, we realize that whether it be the transmissible nature of whatever variant and or your own personal life circumstance and how what it's meant to you and your mental state and your financial position based on restrictions or what have you over the last couple of years, it's time for us to really understand the greater concept of transmissibility and what it means to every different person and how it might strike and affect every single different person. So I feel, you know, for the most part, not too bad here this morning. Voice feels kind of raspy, but that's no big deal. I'll get through it. But I just tried to make the point that since I had it now for the first time, then I have a little different thought on it. Not that, oh, my God, I'm frightened to death of it, because I'm not necessarily. I hope I don't have any long-term effects, long-term symptoms. But, you know, it's been a different bag for different people. So because you think it's a cold or you think it's deadly or you think it's so survival or you don't want the vaccine or you do want the vaccine, who you are, where you are, depends on where you stand or where you sit. So let's keep going. But anyway, 
So I got it from travel. You know, <laughs> the whole concept of adjudicating your own risk, evaluating your own risk, making decisions that's best for you and your family, understood. While people will say, you know, I've been so careful, I've done everything asked of me, I don't know how I got the virus. For me, in an effort to be simply honest with myself and my family and the listeners, I have not been so afraid of everything that I would not touch anywhere, go anywhere, expose myself to anybody, because that hasn't been the way. I've been mindful, and I understood a risk with travel. I took it for a variety of reasons, some of which are none of your business, some of which I'm here happy to share. I had a travel voucher that was going to expire for travel that I originally booked back in 2019. So we went, we came back, and bang, I got it. And hopefully you're going to be okay. Now, some of the travel issues continue to persist. I didn't experience much in the way of them because I didn't have a flight that landed in or had anything to do with Toronto's Pearson International. I did have a flight uh, bumped for two days at the beginning of the travel, which was a nuisance, and not based on federal government issues. The airlines are prepared. Now with the federal government's relationship to travel, they have indeed reinstated random testing for unvaccinated travelers. It's a fair conversation. We do not need to go too far down the road to admonish or to vilify, whether it be the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. The issues are real. I, mean, I don't talk about my vac status because I'm sure many of you couldn't care less. I had the primary series plus one booster. I got it because we know it's not as protective as we all hoped it would be. I can still contract it. I can still spread it, albeit at different levels of rate and severity for those who are not in the similar position. But with mandatory quarantine for 14 days and random testing, albeit not in the airport, not going to bring anything else to a further standstill or further prolonged delays, it's going to be done at home on days one and day eight, I think there's reasonable conversations to be had about how the protocols work. In addition to that, a lot of blame being placed on the ArriveCan app. Now, so here I go, first day back, right into the controversies. The ArriveCan app, for me, was not hard to navigate. For some, it may be. So if and when you have a loved one who might not be as tech-savvy or have a smartphone or really know how to navigate an app, including ArriveCan, it's probably worthwhile trying to put some effort into preparing them for their travel, giving them all the assistance they need to deal with the ArriveCan app. It didn't slow anything down as far as I could tell. In fact, while many people begin to tell me that it's part of the social credit system, let's harken back to when we didn't have an app. And we had to stand in line at the customs office. We were questioned by a customs officer. We had a paper declaration filled out. That's really the only change I can tell. They don't have any more information about me than they would have had if I filled out the paper declaration and stood in line and spoke to a customs officer. But those concerns are real. Same thing with the delay on passports. It's a problem for many. I totally get it. You want to tackle it? Let's do it. And we can talk about the booster eligibility now for folks 50-plus and a variety of other different circumstances, if you like. And until they change the definition of what fully vaccinated means, and at this point it remains, the primary series, then let's try not to get too stressed out about who gets and who doesn't. If we have to go down the road of talking about mandates for jobs and travel and the like, then the conversation can justifiably and rightfully be renewed. Until then, not so sure. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. Back to the province in full. Actually, I guess it's a national conversation. You know, while I was away, Ministers Haggie and Osborne switched portfolios, health education, vice versa. So I heard the minister around with Linda as well yesterday talking about the need to meet with the Ukrainian healthcare professionals that have arrived from Poland and now looking to set up shop in this province. 
they're frustrated with the inability to get right down to brass tacks and to participate as said trained professional. It's worth noting that not every med school in the world is created equal. We have to be diligent and uh, focus on your accreditation to ensure you're able to pass the standard testing to be able to practice, even if that comes with a shortened time frame where you're mentored or shadowed by another accredited physician in this province, not just doctors, healthcare professionals across the board. Sometimes our hyper-focus on doctors has kind of caused us to take our eye off the ball about all of the potential strains that can be relieved and or dis diminished or lessened in the entirety of the healthcare system. But the Ukrainian conversation is real. I also read a story yesterday, and this is in no attempt to defend the provincial government because it's not. The conversation and the stories are the same around the country. There's a conversation come from the province of British Columbia and stories from Nova Scotia about what they're doing to try to make it easier and to lessen the time frame and the cost and the anxiety for foreign trained healthcare professionals to be in the fold. In BC, they estimate they have thousands of healthcare professionals. One doctor quoted in the story, practiced for eight years in India, has now been in Canada for eight years working at a call center. How can that possibly be the case? So two things. We need to understand that the doctors and other healthcare professionals are adequately trained for our system. Yes, there has to be some consideration given to language barriers, of course, but it needn't be the delay that it is today. Same thing when it comes to provincial jurisdiction and territorial you-know-what. If you are a trained, accredited doctor, regardless if you're from Pakistan or India or Lebanon or China or Japan or the United States, and you've got the accreditations to work in this country, let's drop some of the borders, the issues regarding locums and paperwork and time and cost, if doctors would like to be mobile, because they are. And you want to take on what you hear and see in this province regarding the approach that the government has taken to try to deal with the health care issue, and for the most of you, and me, you can indeed justifiably call it a crisis. You want to tackle it? We can do it. All right. And it also goes on to what the workplace is like, opportunities for training, amenities where you live, the difference between recruiting in the northeast uh, Avalon versus the southwest coast or the great northern peninsula or Labrador or whatever. You want to take it on? Let's go. Inflation. Look, every time you turn your head, right? Inflation now at a 39-year high at 8.1%. Gasoline, one of the major contributors. Now, overnight, the price drops from 6.4 cents, where Latida is just a little bit less than two bucks a liter. And people, I guess any relief is good relief, but imagine any sense of quote unquote relief when it's just less than two bucks a liter. Virtually all the fuels are down across the board. But inside the world of gasoline, even if you back out of inflation, any of the uh, issues surrounding the price of gas, inflation's still at 6.5%. So in the grocery stores, where I think the major concern is, because not everybody drives but everybody eats, the prices of groceries are up almost 55%, pardon me, gasoline up about 55% year over year. 8.8% increase year over year in Canada for food, the price of food. You don't see it as much in the summertime because we can indeed rely much more on domestic production, which curbs some of the price conflicts, which curbs some of the inflationary pressures on groceries. Which leads me to also extend the point that I've tried to make many, many times. We can blame it on whoever we want to blame it on. But let's also be mindful. Profit is not a bad word. Government picking winners and losers is a slippery slope, to say the very least. But let's also include the fact that some of the companies that are driving some of the pressure points for price in my world, your world, are the companies. 
70-year high profitability. Not a bad word, but let's factor it in. Grocery chains making a lot of money. Their margins are slim. I totally get it. Fossil fuel companies not only in extraction but in refinery making huge margins. Let's not, let's not neglect to include that in the well-rounded conversation about how and why we're paying what we are. Just like in the benchmark for the Bank of Canada. It doesn't just impact your ability to service your debt. It also impacts the government's ability. So, look, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador says they're going to have to try to find ways to curb some spending, save some money. But it also means that there's a potential for some $15 million in additional borrowing or debt servicing as a result of this most recent hike. You want to take it on? We can do it. Uh, now, at this point, I would generally say, Dave, how are we doing on the phone? But, of course, I'm at home, and I don't have the eye contact with Dave. He could be giving me the thumbs up or thumbs down. I don't know. Uh, last one. You hear me talking about the education system a lot. And now high school marks are available today through the Power, Power School portal. It says 94% of eligible graduates have indeed met the requirements to graduate. I still would love to know exactly what went on in the symposium that the provincial government held with frontline workers, the district, and others about the prepared, preparedness of our graduates for next stage. Marine Institute, CNA, the Memorial University all say that they are willing, ready, and able to accommodate what is the reality for many of the graduates. But we'd like to know what was inside of that symposium and what the recommendations are and how close we are to imposing them. Just hearing from uh, Terry Hart, good friend of the station, great friend of mine here on email. He's also reminding me that it will not just be the Stanley Cup making an appearance here in the province this summer, also the Memorial Cup for junior hockey supremacy. The St. John Sea Dogs won the Memorial Cup. Travis Cricket from town, assistant coach on that team. The Cup is going to be here. I got a message from his uh, cousin Steve. It's coming as well. I'll get you the date now pretty soon. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. We're taking your emails. It's openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune on the go. Today in 1973, for the first time, hitting number one for Jim Croce was bad. Bad, bad, Leroy Brown. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number four. Barb, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning to you, Barb. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm good. Um, I'm calling this morning um, regarding the situations at the airports. Um, I used to, years ago, I used to work at the airport, and I was a passenger service agent. Now, this was only something I did for maybe, I don't know, maybe three or four years approximately. And I do remember just back then when none of these issues were going on that I would be verbally abused at my counter. And people would come up and say if your flight was cancelled due to fog, which is common here, um, people would come up and they would, instead of you trying to make arrangements to get them on another flight, all they wanted to do was argue with me. You know what I mean? Like, I understand. I understand where everyone's coming from. Right now, the airports are in a mess all over Canada. I, don't, I guess in states as well, right? But the problem that I'm having is that a lot of it is not being published properly. So I know of someone who right now is a pre-board screening officer. And in Montreal, one of the pre-board screening officers were ver uh, physically uh, attacked last week in Montreal. And as a result, that person left work that day, 14 others walked right behind him and left their job and said, that's enough, we've had enough. 
So as a result, they had to get 14 more pre-board screening officers to go from Nova Scotia up to Montreal to cover off the staff. And 14, I think it's approximately 14, were taken from St. John's Airport and brought up to Halifax to fill in the amount. Do you know what I mean? So I do. And it, it's hard enough to get 14 new screening officers. Yeah. The unfortunate reality is we're already short on them. So what ends up happening for many of these airports is that we just work people to the bone. And consequently, exactly. people you need on their toes, whether it be in the healthcare setting and or schools and or the airports, they're worked pretty hard. And consequently, their level of agitation combined with the level of agitation of the traveling public leads to really heated arguments. And there's no need of it. But no. arguing with the messenger has always been a problem, hasn't it? You know, you go to the grocery store and you argue with the cashier. The cashier had nothing to do with it, whatever decision is made or the flyer. You go to a, another retail outlet and you argue with someone because they haven't got 34, 36 jeans. It's not their fault. So we've just got to yeah. kind of take our deep breaths every now and then. Like, I, I mean, I know of people, don't get me wrong, I know of people that had traveled back in May month and went on a cruise from here, flew to Miami, you know, to go on their cruise, and to this day still haven't gotten their luggage back. So, yes, listen, I get all that. I totally do. But, like, these airlines have got to set up a separate, I don't know if you want to call it a reception desk or whatever you want to call it, but you can't, like, you like, okay, say, for example, up in Toronto Pearson, they had passenger service agents with Air Canada and had two working out of ten and huge lineup behind. So, of course, instead of every person just coming up, getting checked in, or putting through their luggage, they decided to have an argument. So each, each individual person decided to have an argument first. The two passenger service agents were in tears. Now, this was all on Global National the other night. So the, the other eight girls, had, or other eight passenger service agents, I should call them, because they are male and female, they call in sick, most of them, due to the fact of being physically and verbally abused. So I'm not just taking one side of the coin here being behind the desk, but I do know what it's like to deal with people in that tone. And it's okay if you deal with one or two, and yes, that's what we're all taught to believe. You know, we got to try and de-escalate the situation. That's mostly what we're supposed to do. But when you got every single person pretty much coming up to you and literally tearing a strip out of you, you just get broke down and you do not, you cannot, you don't even fight back anymore. You just don't have answers. You lose your, you lose your focus. Of course, and emotions have been intensified, I would suggest, over the last few years for all the obvious reasons, but shooting the messenger has long been something that we should be considering, and people who you generally deal with face-to-face, unless you get a manager or a supervisor or someone at the executive level, you're arguing with somebody who's doing their level best and has no decision-making authority. So it's probably a helpful reminder. Just a quick question, Barb, on something you said off the top here. You said it's not being published properly. What does that mean? Well, like, with regards to that particular uh, age or pre-board screening officer in Montreal who was uh, physically abused uh, and 14 others walking off the job and then 14 taken from Nova Scotia up there from Halifax Airport and go to Montreal and then others from St. John's going up there to fill in the gap, um, I don't recall that being published. I just know of someone personally very close to me who works at the Halifax Airport as a pre-board screening officer and he has told me like it has been he's like they're basically all going through hell and he's 
in the security area. So, like, you know, they're still getting it all the way from when they walk into the airport, the, the people and the passengers, they go to the passenger service agent. Then they got to go through the pre-board screening officers to get through. It's a trickle all the way through. People are upset, and understandably so. But they're the wrong people. They're just not the people to take it out on. But I do feel the airlines and the airports probably together need to set up some sort of desks to help people out. Now, yes, there's thousands of people that need help, but you can't consistently, day after day, take it out on people that are not the proper people to take it out on. That's a good summary point to leave the conversation at, Barb. I couldn't agree more. We, you know, travel is stressful at the very best of times. Not a whole lot of people listening are real seasoned travelers that don't get their feathers ruffled. They anticipate delays. They anticipate potential snags. They think that their bags might be delayed. They try to roll with the punches and take things with a grain of salt. But an awful lot of stressed-out travelers are exactly that. And they are more than happy to lash out at the first person they see with the uniform on representing their carrier, whether it be British Airways, WestJet Air Canada, or whoever the case may be. I appreciate your time this morning, Barbara. Anything else this morning? All right. Thank you so much. And that was it. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. There he goes, Barb. Talking about some of the woes. Look, it happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, when we went to travel back at the end of June, it was, we got bumped a couple of days. Like has been very, very commonplace. We got bumped. It took all I had in me to not go after the guy representing the airline when we first got to the airport. It's not that person's fault. They had nothing to do with it. They didn't even know what happened until they looked on their computer screen. So anyway, there you go. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the program. All right, Dave Williams, let's see if we can go to line number one and say good morning to Mary. Good morning, Mary, Patty. you're on the air. Good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Grant, how about you? Oh, not too bad. Patty, I'm a first-time caller, so I hope I don't trip all over my tongue. But I have you, take, to you just take your time. Go right ahead. Okay. I have to get this off my chest this morning with uh, regard to personal home care. I understand that, you know, during the summertime you have holidays. You have people calling in sick. I have an 85-year-old mom with dementia and an extremely hard, uh, she, she has hearing aids, but she's almost deaf. I have been called biased because I've had to call the home care agency and ask them to please send somebody in who can speak better English. So, Patty, if I'm asking this because my mom cannot pick out what a lady is saying to her, okay, so I'm biased. But when you have uh, the home care, the lady who owns the home care agency, okay, so she's saying to me, you cannot be biased. I can understand what this lady is saying. So I said, okay, maybe you can't. You're not almost 86 years old. You do not have dementia. And you do not have a hearing problem. Plus, you have to try to understand what this person is saying to you through a mask. Uh, I've had workers been told to call the daughter, tell the daughter to go in and cover the shift. I don't work for this company. The whole, for me, the whole benefit of having home care is to know and to feel secure that your loved one is being looked after. 
I have a very active role as well in looking after my mom. But I do need to know that I don't have to worry that tomorrow there isn't going to be anybody in there to look after my mom. I had a call yesterday. They needed me to cover a shift for eight to ten hours. I, I, I don't know what, like, I know there's people having the same problem. But what are you supposed to do with it? Uh, fair enough. And it, it doesn't matter that others may or may not be having the same problem. The fact of the matter is you and your mother are having this problem. Absolutely. So, And it's fine to feel like that regardless of what's happening in other people's lives. I think this this conversation extends further. So for starters, it's not you and your mother saying anything against someone who's uh, a newcomer to this country. If we have a language concern, same thing we talk about with accreditation for doctors. It's something that has to be addressed. And we can talk about it honestly without being mean-spirited like you are. So I think it extends beyond even home care. Just think about it. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we were told that we could not have someone accompany us to doctor's appointments, what have you, one of the first and primary concerns offered was, I need someone there with my mom or dad, nan or pop, to make sure that they understand what's being said, so I can write it down, so we can remember it, as opposed to leave everyone to their own devices, who may be aged, may be hard of hearing, may be in the early onset of dementia, whatever the case may be. So making sure that the communication is clear is in everyone's best interest, the home care attendant, your mother, you, because the intentions are clear. We need them to be given the best care possible, dignified and healthy and safe. But if we have a language barrier and or a hard of hearing barrier or the inability to remember things, then we have to address it and be honest about it. True. And and I have done this. but uh, And like I said, Patty, look, if somebody wants to say I'm biased, then go ahead and say I'm biased. Sure. But you hit the nail on the head. This is my mom. And I'm looking after my mom. But you know what? When, like, I've worried all night, okay? Wondering, is my mom going to be okay today? Just because I was called, you know, I was called yesterday and I was asked to do a shift. I don't work for this company, for starters. I was asked to cover a shift for eight to ten hours. Patty, I don't mind helping out with my mom. But this, this, this part, I mean, they're being paid for a service. They told, uh, I was told that they're having an extremely difficult time this summer. But if you have too many clients and not enough people to look after your clients, there's something wrong there. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's even a bigger conversation than what's happening with you and your family at this moment in time. I know that they're having a hard time keeping staff. I also can add to that conversation is I don't think it's a job I could do for a variety of reasons. The pressure, the the safety and sanctity and dignity and the overall health of the loved one, your loved one, my my patient or my client, then we underpay them. That's a contributing factor. I know people don't want to factor that in because, you know, we're talking about being compassionate, but your ability to perform is also sometimes linked to how you're paid and how you're treated. So if you can't get any time off and you feel like you're undervalued or underpaid, that adds to the level of anxiety for both parties. So there's a lot to this home care conversation, and it must be nice, you know, for companies that offer this service to simply say, I need you, daughter or son, X or Y, to contribute to the care of your one today, regardless of the fact that I have a contract with you to help you, now I don't have the staff available, so now it falls to you. Not everybody has that luxury either. So what happens to the family of the uh, the elderly lady living in Bergio who can't get the home care, the closest living family member is in Toronto, then what? Yeah, it's 
true. You know, it's it's a tough one. Uh, and so, how is your mother? Uh, my mom, I would say, is in the latter stages of dementia. So, you know, it's it's touch and go a lot of days. And and it's true what you said, Patty. I don't know if I could do this 24 hours a day. I would take my mom into my home, but last Christmas was the last time. I try to try to say this that my mom would be able to stay in my home because taking her from a familiar surrounding and putting her, even though she knows my home, to put her with me for one night, um, my mom was so irate that she was going to call the police because she thought that I had basically, I guess, trapped her in my home. And it wasn't, It was the surroundings is what I'm trying to say. The surroundings just weren't familiar to her. So this can't be done anymore. So to take her even on uh, an outing, like when I take her out for a drive, I have to make sure that I don't take her out too long because she starts getting really confused and she gets agitated. So this, this is a horrible disease, but it's something that so many people are going through. And to watch this person, I've often wondered, how do you go from having your memory, your mind, and then bit by bit, this is being robbed from you? Because my mom always says, I'm scared. And I can understand it. So can I. And I'm sorry to hear it's happening on a variety of fronts. I don't know with the home care worker, but just the overall health of your mother and what it means to the family to watch someone living with and suffering through dementia. I'll, I'll make one final point and then I'll let you uh, wrap it up this morning. Sure. You know, it, it goes back to a variety of things regarding health care in particular. It's about preparedness. We have seen the writing on the wall in this province in particular about what it means to age, whether it be age in place or beds available in long-term care, the required staff or staffing ratios. The numbers are clear in the world of Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, I'll try to remember these numbers as accurately as possible. In 2016, there was about 550,000 Canadians living with dementia. The estimates uh, by 2030 or 2032, something like that, they estimate that it's going to be closer to 950,000. So we know what that means when we translate it to the population of this province, a factor in our aging demographic. So, you know, unless we get out in front of it, your story will be common. It's all too common, as opposed to knowing what's coming, not based on worst-case scenario, but based on the best stats we can get from Stats Canada and other health organizations. We see what's happening. We know what's coming. Unless we are prepared for it today, we'll be chasing our tail tomorrow, which leads to more sadness and anxiety that I'm sure you and your family feel. I'll give you the last word this morning, Mary. No, that, that's it, Patty. You know, that basically sums it up. Um, I'm probably going to hang up the phone and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I wanted to say this or whatever the case may be. But I think I basically I covered it. Uh, I just hope that there aren't too many people going through the same. I'm going to call it uh, not even aggravation. I don't even know a proper word for it right now. Uh, worrying. Well, you know what? There's... There's no one word for it, is it? When you combine sadness with worry and frustration with grief and madness with uh, despair, then who knows what that adds up to for one word. We can all hear it in your voice. We know what it means, and you are not alone. So hopefully uh, things will work out the way they should with the home care worker and with you and your mother, and that things she can live the rest of her life with the dignity that she deserves. For sure. Thank you ever so much for your time. Happy to have you on, Mary. You're always welcome. Okay, take good care. You know, isn't that always going to be the key? 
And I think it goes back to the larger conversation. So like Krista said that it's not just doctors. It's about accreditation for different professionals to come. We see what shortcomings might be in the labor market shortfalls. We've seen them coming. We have to be prepared. We understand the issues inside of healthcare right across the country, whether it be for the number of seniors, whether it be with different type of viruses, whether it be with staffing levels. And all, we understand all these things. And it didn't just happen overnight. These are things we saw. It was happening right in front of us. The warning signs were there. The red flags have been hoisted to the top of the mast for years. So and I think that conversation gets even a bit more serious. Well, that's not the right word. It gets a bit more complicated and emotional when we factor in things like dementia and Alzheimer's. The numbers are clear. The Canadian, the Canadian Institute for Public Health Information is very, very clear on these things. So are the umbrella organizations regarding Alzheimer's and dementia. So are Stats Canada. So, you know, we have to understand where we're going, make sure we, when we arrive there, we're able to deal with the issues that are omnipresent. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go back to line number four and say good morning to the Newfoundland Board of Directors member for the National Cons the Nature Conservancy of Canada. That's Piers Evans. Good morning, Piers. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I, uh, it's nice to uh, finally uh, meet you over the radio, Patty. It's, I've, uh, I've heard great things about uh, chatting with you. Well, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on and to meet you as well this morning, Pierce. So, of course, the Nature Conservancy of Canada has done a lot of work in this province over the years. One of the notable ones close by where I live is out in Salmonier, on Salmonier Line and the Salmonier River. You've got another purchase that comes with a variety of different issues associated with it. This one out in St. Mary's. How did this come to pass? Uh, yeah, that's right. So this is a, uh, our latest um, uh, kind of land procurement project. Um, it, uh, it comes as a result of... Uh, the tender process for the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation St. John's, uh, which, I mean, obviously uh, a lot of people are familiar with. It's been capturing a lot of headlines. Um, but it, uh, it's a really um, uh, a beautiful piece of land that uh, we came to hear about down in uh, the St. Mary's Bay uh, area. Um, and it um, will mean a, a pretty significant expansion to our Samir uh, 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 Nature Reserve. Um, from uh, 437 acres to just over 1,000 acres. So uh, this new 570-acre parcel is uh, uh, mostly, you know, uh, relatively untouched boreal forest um, mixed in with uh, yellow and white birch. Uh, it provides uh, great habitat for some uh, rare, uh, you know, endangered species, uh, lichen species, bird species, bat species. Um so we're quite excited to kind of um, uh, get out there and, and really investigate it and, and see uh, what kind of secrets it holds and what kind of species make it call it its home. So for the NCC, of course, it's the preservation regarding the environmental sensibilities or sensitivities. For other of these sales regarding uh, properties or assets of the Roman Church, of the Roman Catholic Church, it's been for developers or for the community that has rallied about and tried to raise funds to keep it as a church and preserve the graveyards and the like. For the NCC, why, how is your approach going to be different here? Because you're not looking to develop the church or the property. You're not looking to take it out of the hands of the local congregants. Or are you? Can this indeed still remain a place where people can, like, for instance, what, what specific community is there or, or is this property in? And is there a church on site? Is it an active parish? 
Yeah, so it is uh, 570 acres of completely vacant, undeveloped land. So there's no uh, church, there's no okay. graveyard, cemetery, nothing like that. It is it is just uh, forests, wetland, uh, and coastline. Um, so uh, we are looking to kind of preserve it as such. Uh, we'll, uh, we often partner, uh, especially in the Samir Line area, with... Um, Researchers looking to do uh, kind of uh, different kinds of projects, looking at, um, uh, say, the impact of, uh, you know, different uh, species on a landscape or uh, to uh, to look at uh, how, say, uh, lately, um, there are a couple of bat species that were listed as endangered provincially. And so we'll be looking at setting up uh, acoustic bat monitoring equipment uh, on this property in future years in, in partnership with the Provincial Wildlife Division. So kind of investigating how those species are sort of distributed across the island. So we do all kinds of that, uh, that work and, and very collaborative. But as far as the public is concerned, uh, this uh, property is uh, in the neighborhood of um, uh, the town of Mount Carmel, um, St. Catherine and Mitchellsbrook. I'm, I'm not entirely sure if I got those all in the right order. But, uh, 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 and we do have, um, uh, you know, active conversations with the town about, um, you know, how we can uh, facilitate um, people continuing to recreate on on these lands. Um, in that area, we uh, often encourage um, moose hunting on our properties. Um, you know, we allow ATV use to you know sticking to uh, existing trails so that we're not kind of opening up uh, you know too many new areas. Um, and we certainly encourage any kind of uh, you know recreational hiking or or that kind of activity. Yeah, yeah you, it's not too far away then from your other uh, parcel of land in Salmonair because you're right, St. Catharines would be right on the Salmonair line itself, and then you'd go out down one side of the bay, Mount Carmel, then Mitchell's Brook, so you're in the right neighborhood. Uh, and that's the key question that the locals would have is, well, my access looked like prior, what will it look like now? So will there be any further restrictions, whether it be to protect lichen or other parts of the environment because of the purchase and the oversight by the NCC? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, many of the same rules apply. It continues to be privately held land. So, uh, you know, there is a, a domestic harvest area, uh, you know, provincially designated domestic harvest area adjacent to this property. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there are a few ATV trails that kind of go through this property to uh, maybe access uh, wood harvesting areas in behind or, or remote cabins in behind. Uh, that's the sort of thing that, you know, we we certainly allow to continue. Uh, we just ask that people stick to the trails that are existing. Uh, we try not to open up new trails, especially across wetlands. Can do a lot of of really long lasting damage to wetlands in particular. Um, but we understand that you know Newfoundlanders and Labradorians like to be on the land. We don't want to stand in their way. Um, we don't allow uh, wood harvesting on our properties just because we are, you know, trying to preserve that those that habitat for you know the many species that kind of call that place home. Uh, and especially where it's sort of adjacent to a domestic harvest area, you know that's you know that's where the wood harvesting you know, could and should happen. So, um, so we just ask that people refrain from cutting on on NCC properties. But like I said, many of the other activities, hiking, um, uh, even moose hunting, uh, those are things that uh, that we um, allow. And, and in the case of moose hunting, we encourage on our properties, uh, especially in that area. 
Well, it, it's part of uh, what we now understand to be the ecosystem and all the players there, and predators also include the bipedal. Uh, you mentioned bats. So I think there's only three species of bats in the province. There has been some issues with disease with the brown bat. I think there's a long air bat and something called a hoary bat, which I'm not really familiar with. What kind of bats are in this particular piece of land? What are you looking at specifically with the bat population? Yeah, so we don't know yet. Uh, so that's what we're looking okay. at, uh, uh, kind of a, um, you know, gaining a better understanding, uh, again, in partnership with the provincial government on this, because uh, now that it's provincially listed, you know, the provincial government will be um, working towards a recovery plan for these two species. And it's the little brown myotis and the northern myotis. And, and the myotis, uh, you know, it's usually more commonly known as brown bat. So little brown bat or, or uh, northern brown bat. Um, uh, so we'll be setting out these uh, acoustic, uh, uh, this acoustic monitoring equipment that's borrowed from the provincial government um, on our Samnier properties, and uh, you know, collecting data for a period of a, a week or two, and then we kind of take that back in and uh, run that through some identification software, and we see, you know, just who's out there feeding on the, you know, the flies and the little critters um, flying through the air at night. Well, if you're interested at all in just how many insects are out there landing on you and possibly pestering you during your time on the land, the bats are a pretty key component in insect control. I think there's some 18 different species of bats in the country, only three indigenous to this province. Good to have you on the show for our initial conversation at a meeting this morning, Pierce. Thanks for the info. Okay, thanks very much for having me. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's one of the representatives for the Nature Conservancy of Canada, representing the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Piers Evans. All right. Welcome news inside the fishery. I read a news story the other day where the province was offering up either a mediator or an arbitrator regarding the harvesters and the price-setting panel and the processors. Now the government says they're looking at potential ways to make it better for all involved because, remember... Regardless of your processor and or harvester, if you have standoffs, prolonged standoffs like we've seen in the shrimp industry, it hurts the harvester, it hurts the processor, it hurts the employees inside the plants, it hurts the security and reliability of our supply, consequently maybe jeopardizing our markets. Merv Wiseman from CNL is coming up after the break. So is Christine Ennis to talk about the state of the roads out in Southlands and then tons of time to speak with you about whatever's on your mind. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the program. I see now a note from Paul on Twitter that there's a labor dispute at the construction site at the new Cornerbrook Hospital. The picket lines are up. We'll see if we can get some more information from the province's west coast. All right, let's go. Line number six, say good morning to Christina Ennis. Christina, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I am What's calling today. Um, so I'm... Overall, our road conditions are good out here in Southland. Um, but I definitely have some safety concerns with some of the road work that's been ongoing um, and some of the other additions that were, I believe, intended to enhance safety in the area. And with the rising cost of living and, um, you know, how that relates to our public services, I'd feel a little bit better if I had a little bit of reassurance that we were definitely doing things as cost-effectively as possible um, and as safely as possible. So what specifically? Give us an idea. Paint us a picture. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with the current situation. So there were some roadworks started on the boulevard about a month ago, and there was definitely some confusion at the time. There was random lane closures on either side of the road, reducing it to one lane, both in and out of Southlands. Um, and you couldn't really tell where they 
started and ended due to the location of the pylons and things like that. So um, thank you to Councillor Elver for uh, getting the flags people there. That's been super helpful. But uh, the last couple of days, the team has packed up and they're gone. So it seems like some of the curbs have been replaced. Um, but now there's these chunks out of the pavement on either side of the road um, that have been filled with gravel. And, you know, cars are driving over them. Uh, the, the sides are pretty sharp and I'm not quite sure why uh, it wasn't finished uh, but the road work overall has been causing quite a few backups and things like that um, but yeah the the departure of the team at this point um, concerns me because you know they're going to have to deploy another team at some point um, I hope people don't get flat tires over there there's gravel all over the road now that's going to have to be cleaned up so I'm just a little bit concerned about uh, you know fiscal responsibility for things like this i'm not a road expert of course um but in addition to this current road work there was a median put in a couple years ago on the end of ruby line uh that has some questionable spacing and a pole that gets hit on the regular and you can't see it when it snows down and a crosswalk that's been put in on a blind turn so that is a couple of my concerns with roads in southlands these days well, there's lots of road concerns out there, that's for sure. I mean, I've been to yeah. Southlands recently. The roads are pretty good compared to some of the other roads under the authority or the auspices of the city of St. John's. But, you yeah. know, there's always going to be some questions to be asked about a couple of things. You know, the positioning of some of the bump outs, the speed control the mechanisms that they've chosen. I'm not so sure about some of the location of those. Then I think there's a fair question that I think you're posing here about what crew is responsible for what work. Like the grind and patch. Okay, I got the grinders and I got the patchers. Sometimes there's a bit of a disconnect between the two groups, whether it be the people who put down the sidewalk and the folks responsible for cleanup or whatever we're talking about. Probably the answer inside some of that is different crews have different responsibilities and unfortunately working at a different pace. It might be quicker to lay down the sidewalk than it is for the next crew to come along or to smooth out some of the rough spots or what have you. But they all add up to a bit of slowdown, some confusion, maybe some jeopardy to our safety. But I'll, I'll throw this in there because I do the same thing. I get concerned whenever I see them because we all want what we, we want what we want when we want it. So we all want road work done, but then we bemoan the fact that it's getting done because it does add to some hiccups and some potential, I think most importantly, some uh, potential safety concerns. So I get where you're coming from. Have you had any further answers from uh, the good counselor? Um, no, I haven't reached out. Uh, Ron, if you're listening, if you want to give me a shout, feel free. Um, but, um, yeah, so I there's just been some rumbling in the groups um speed control is constantly an issue down here and you know implementing a crosswalk on southlands boulevard where there's no stoplight um and it's on a blind turn so you really can't see if someone is starting across the street if you're heading towards kind of glendenning so um you know some of those decisions um whereas could have put in speed bumps on some of the streets to to actually physically slow cars down um you know, just making sure we're using our funds that we have available in the best uh, best manner possible. Some of the places where we'd like to see traffic calmed a little bit, and sometimes a speed bump does what it's intended to do, but some of the main thoroughfares are the primary access routes for first responders. Consequently, we can't put a speed bump on them. And then the one just not too far from where I live on Logie Bay Road, 
the the vast majority of the larger vehicles can straddle the speed bump. Consequently, they just rip right over it like it's not even there. For me, nothing slows me down quite like that big uh, board that tells me how fast I'm going. It's got a little speed condition there, right? So I'm in a 50 zone. It says you're going 65. That slows me down. I think that's the most effective, and I think we can move those around fairly effectively, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. what most people respond to. I live very close to what I consider to be a racetrack. It's got a school on it, but it's a really wide road. So sometimes it's even just the visual with how wide the road is makes me feel like I can go faster, but it's a 30 zone. So, you know, depending on where we're talking about in the city or the province, different things will slow different people down. Like even on the highway, I think we should put in speed cameras, red light cameras. I'm really a big proponent of it. But Mm -hmm. even like on the highway, what also slows me down is not only the potential to see a police car, it's even just the cardboard cut out of a moose. It's funny how different people react to different things. Yeah, no, that's true. My neighbor actually approached me. We're going to get together and get some of those slow down little plastic fellas to put around our street. So I look forward to that. But um, the the gravel loss on pits last week, you you probably missed this while you're on vacation. Maybe you heard about it. Uh, traffic was backed up in all directions. So, you know, there's only one entrance and exit to Southland. So uh, traffic was being diverted off pits onto the boulevard because of this load of gravel and uh it was backed up in all directions if there had been an emergency i would have been really really concerned so um just access into the southland community is very limited at the moment so i really hope that road is going to be finished too between us and Galway soon soon enough yeah, I mean, I have been to Southlands many times, so I find it to be a fairly confusing area. I know for folks who live there, it's no, not uh, really a big deal. I also find Mount Pearl confusing. I've lived here virtually all my life. I don't know how to find anything in Mount Pearl. I hate to say it, but I'll just make that admittance. Good to have you on the show, Christina. Stay in touch. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. We've been talking about the fact that, you know, the seafood price-setting panel has its ups and its downs. It's a three-person panel. The FFAW will put forward their suggested price, and the Association for Seafood Producers would put forward their suggested price. The committee is obliged to pick one of them. Consequently, standoffs are the order of the day with many species every season. Let's go to line number, whichever line Merv is on, and say good morning to Merv Wiseman. Good morning, Merv. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Katie. It's nice to see you uh, back on deck, although I'm not sure you have your full set of sea legs, but you're doing very well. I appreciate um, that. I, I've felt better, but I'm glad to be back. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back. Um, yeah, you, you've, um, you know, you framed the, the situation that I want to talk about uh, very well in your preamble before the, before the advertisements there and, um, and after coming back. Um, I, what I wanted to call about this morning uh, in the face and out in the background from uh, Seafort Enterprise uh, Association, CNL, is the fact that uh, we've been very vocal um, about uh, the province's collective bargaining model for fish processing, and in fact, uh, have recently um, indicated that uh, it should be eliminated because it was clearly a dysfunctional model that need to needs to be looked at. It was introduced, of course, in 2006. Um, it's been a long time. Sometimes I wonder why it takes so long to to do the obvious. Um, 16 years. On this one, I looked at the fish and vessel safety, for example. It took us four decades to get a, some movement on the uh, size restrictions for vessels. But anyway, um, I did awake this morning to hear the news that um, 
that the minister responsible, Bernie Davis, uh, is going to initiate uh, an independent review. At least he's calling it an independent review. And David Conway, the former chair of the Labor Relations Board, will be the person to uh, to conduct that uh, with input, obviously, from fish harvesters, from industry, and, and the general public. So uh, clearly, um, it's uh, it, it's really good news. So just as we are here to talk about the negatives and the bad news, we want to be there as an organization to applaud uh, you know, movement forward and uh, this good news. So, you know, hence the purpose for my call this morning. But I, I did want to underline, you know, some of the dysfunctionality of this, or at least one example that uh, you're quite familiar with. And uh, I know that you had an, uh, quite a number of conversations with, with Ryan Cleary, for example, and also uh, Terry Ryan, you know, and this all started from the sitting, this arbitrary sitting on, in, under the final offer selection uh article of the collective bargaining piece and and where it set the spring price for um arbitrarily set the spring price the board did at a dollar 42 of course processors uh wouldn't wouldn't purchase so we didn't have a, a spring shrimp fishery and of course as we segued into the summer the summer uh minimum price at 90 cents uh, was set arbitrarily by the panel, and lo and behold, the uh, fish harvesters themselves wouldn't fish for that price. In the middle of all that, of course, someone like Terry Ryan decides to take it in their own hands, show some leadership, and says, okay, I'll catch my fish, I'll catch my shrimp, I'll take it to Nova Scotia, which he did. Uh, four trips, I think, up to, to this point, or at least he's working on the fourth trip. The tragedy, uh, among other things in all that, Patty, was the fact that on his way for that probably 1,000-kilometer trip to North Sydney was that he passed maybe seven or eight, maybe more, uh, shrimp plants that was quite capable of processing that shrimp and bringing the jobs and opportunity to the people on shore who, God knows, needs those jobs. So, you know, what a, what a perfect illustration of, of dysfunctionality and, uh, and what great news to see that we may see the light at the end of the tunnel if we can get the right input into this and get it all overturned. The trick here is that, and this is not a slight on either side of this coin, but they have distinctly different wants and needs. And everybody wants to make as much money as they possibly can, all the while hopefully being good stewards of the uh, the species or the industry itself. So I've long thought about what a model would look like. I have said repeatedly that, you know, someone can point me to another industry where we get so little for the raw material. But even if you had, say, for an instance, uh, an auction at the at the wharf, then we can't lose sight of what that means for local processors and the people they employ. So, yes, it'd be great to get top dollar, but how do you uh, structure or put in place a mechanism where both sides feel like they've been treated fairly on every species every year? Because I've had a hard time trying to devise one in my mind. Yeah, that's, that's true, Petty. Look, if anybody says I have the perfect solution, uh, they're not telling the truth. They, they just don't know. Uh, it, it's not easy, but, you know, the, the operative word here is fairness. Um, hey, and it's not all that difficult to recognize fairness sometimes. I mean, when we see the FFAW going into negotiations, they're really going in with, uh, you know, with, with one hand tied behind their back, maybe two, uh, in that they have no idea where the benchmark uh, market benchmark 
benchmark is f- for prices. Uh, some ideas, but, you know, it's, it's speculative in a lot of ways. Uh, the processors on the other end goes in knowing exactly what they're going to get, but yet they don't have to divulge that. So there must be something there that can help. But the other part, too, in, 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 in light of, you know, where that price, that, 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 that sweet spot happens to be on price is let's look at Terry Ryan. Uh, if he can get a dollar sixty-two in Nova Scotia, and I understand that uh, he did get uh, uh, variable prices, but it did peak at one sixty-two, uh, then that tells me that there's a benchmark out there that processors can can pay. So why can't we have a mechanism to bring us close close to that? If we want to use something as an example, and there are other examples out there. Sure, and I guess, you know, even inside the business model of that processor with the fluctuation of prices is they've figured out a way to couch their bet. They know that their primary source of the goods comes from their local harvesters. They've got a price that they deal with those harvesters with. They've got a market that they understand. They know where they have some wiggle room. So they may indeed process more, employ more people, make more money, but make less on the Nova Scotia product or more on the Nova Scotia product or vice versa with what came from Terry Ryan or anyone else whose team's over to Nova Scotia. So when we include the other provinces, I know it's part of the conversation, but when we don't have a full understanding of what their business model looks like for profitability, uh, staffing up or crewing up for the season, for shrimp or anything else, then we probably try, we might indeed deflect or distract ourselves from what might work in this province, regardless of implications of Quebec processors or Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or anywhere else, because we don't know exactly what they're dealing with. We don't know how that influences how much money they make, how many people they employ for how many weeks. So I think we start here, we figure this out, and then we try to extend the conversation to the scenarios that present outside of the province. Because if we try to figure it all out, with all of that included in the one so-called new structure, we're probably just going to create a dog's breakfast that might be so complicated then nobody knows what the hell they're doing. So I get the point, and it's absolutely part of it, but there's got to be a way to manage the fishery here. Hopefully that means we don't have to include outside processors. We don't have to include uh, processors here buying from harvesters elsewhere because that's what the, uh, the end result has been. Terry Ryan steams over to uh, Nova Scotia, and buyers here buy from others that are not Newfoundland and Labrador inshore harvesters. There's a way to alleviate those pressures, I think. What the mechanism is, I admit freely, I don't know. Well, no, of course, and very well said, very well put, Patty. It's a, it's a good point. It, it certainly serves to show us the dilemmas that we're faced with. Um, now, I also hear today um, that OCI is paying a dollar twenty now. That's that's public. Uh, you know, they had uh, talked about a, a, a summer price uh, by the panel that was set arbitrarily at ninety cents. Now OCI has finally said, okay, one twenty, no problem. We'll, we'll pay it. So, but yet we we had an arbitrary. Uh, panel sitting that said you can't go higher than 90 um, by the processors and you and but you can't they also said you can't go to a dollar 42 but there's nothing in between so if you if you take the if you take the issue of, of compromise the issue of, of, of conciliation uh, and flexibility out of uh, out of collective bargaining what do, what do you have and and that and that's what's being taken out, and that's again it's it's it's, it's, it's been part of the you know the dysfunction of of, of the um, of the provincial collective bargaining model. And even the ability to go back to the panel mid-season and say we need an adjustment based on what the market can bear. That all sounds great, 
But it also throws a monkey wrench into it for both sides, harvesters, uh, processors alike. I mean, processors have to be prepared for what the product is, the volume coming in the door, so they can process it in a timely fashion, hit their markets with top-quality product. Same with the harvesters. They need to know, so a couple of things. The DFO needs to do a better job earlier in the game to tell us what the quota will be so, you know, the TAC broke down to individual quotas so that people can be prepared. And that's all hands. All sides of the equation can be prepared. Then for the fluctuation of price, we've got to have maybe very specific dates. Okay, if the shrimp season lasts 45 days, and just pick an arbitrary number, at 15, 30, and 40, we'll have a review of the price. No implication required for an application from the ASP or FFAW. We'll have a look at what the market can bear. So that level of independence takes away any of the rackets about Earl McCurdy's presence on the panel or anybody else, because if we're simply going to have it, it's up to the chair. We'll have a rep for the FFAW, a rep for the ASP, and hopefully an independent chair. That will be the price selected by one person. We're kidding ourselves that it's a three-person panel. So there's just a lot to this, and it's not working for either side, I would suggest. Consequently, a spring shrimp fishery is lost. That's no good for anybody. Well, no, absolutely. And, and all, uh, you know, ultimately, we, we as an association, um, you know, uh, are looking for fairness, a fair price um, for for our constituents, which are the, the license holders and the boat owners and, and operators. And uh, and hopefully the the new model, hopefully the new model, um, is you know will will we'll bring that forward because we've we've squandered. We've seen um, as we pointed out other examples. We've seen our cucumber fishery being squandered, our capelin fishery being squandered. You know the shrimp, and now with the squid coming up, it's uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty darn serious. So uh, thank you for Patty Patty for for this. And uh, I, I I'll close by saying there's another uh, piece that's coming out on apprenticeship. Uh, for uh, laborers in this province, there's an RFP released. I understand that it may have come from Jerry Burns' uh, portfolio, uh, but uh, there's some things about it I don't understand. Uh, what we're scratching our head about now is whether or not the fishery um, and fish harvesters and up-and-coming fish harvesters will be included in an apprenticeship, or uh, will they be uh, excluded because professionalization on a professional fish service certification board uh, takes precedence? We don't know. So another question to ask uh, later, it gets a clarification on, and I'm sure we'll be looking at that and talking about it down the road. We talked about qualifications and accreditation for healthcare professionals. I mean, a similar conversation in the fishery. How long is it going to take to get your papers to be an official harvester as opposed to the convoluted issue and process that's in place? Good to have you on, Murph. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Patty. Good morning. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Bernadine is in the queue. She wants to talk about potential treatments for COVID. And Sabrina, it's the fifth anniversary of the Junior Miss NL. We'll speak with both of these ladies right after this. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, Bernadine, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, after listening to your introduction this morning about COVID, I thought it was my opportunity to give a perspective from an immunocompromised person. Um, I had a kidney transplant about 14 years ago, and because of that, uh, my immune system is certainly not what it should be. And I am fortunate enough to be in a study through the Grant Lab at the uh, Health Science to show that uh, the effects of vaccine with um, antibody building up in your in your system, because I'm so compromised, I did not build up any antibodies after four full doses of the vaccine. 
So a good response to the vaccine would be a level of two. Mine was 0.4. So pretty well, I'm like an unvaccinated person. So two and a half years into the pandemic, I'm pretty well back to where people were at the beginning. However, there is uh, an option now. It's an antibody treatment that has been approved by Health Canada back in uh, April. And the name of it is uh, Evusheld. And it's two injections of this antibody. It's given to people that are severely compromised to give you that little bit of extra protection uh, so that you won't get severely ill with COVID. So it's not going to replace a vaccine, but it pretty well gives us a similar comfort level, I would say. Uh, The Health Canada purchased 100,000 doses of it to distribute between the provinces, and some provinces have already started to give it. However, here in Newfoundland, I was told yesterday that we will not be getting it because they feel it's not effective enough and there's not enough data. In my mind, the scientists with Health Canada would be your top specialists within the country. And if they're saying that it's okay to give, why is it that we as Newfoundlanders cannot get it? It's an excellent question. I wouldn't have any idea. So when we talk about treatments, of course, there's been lots of goings on about some of the other unapproved treatments, you know, I'll just unfortunately say the hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and the like, but there are approved treatments, whether it be Paxlovid and Remdesivir is another one for those who are maybe needing supplemental oxygen. There's a variety that the FDA have looked at. There's a variety that Health Canada have looked at. We've seen most of our guidance come from NACI, but that's strictly about immunization. And, you know, we all, and I freely admit, I wish the vaccine worked better than it, it actually does and put the protection offered more lengthy protection but if there's something approved and it can work, I think it's a fair question we should be posing to public health. If it can work in Ontario, how can it not work here? And I'm happy to ask that question on your behalf. Can you tell me what the name of it is one more time? I'll jot it down. It's Evusheld, E-V-U-S-H-E-L-D. Okay, Evusheld. Okay, I'll have a look. And, I mean, for to go out of province, uh, I mean, I would be willing to go anywhere to get it just to give me that little bit of extra protection so that my family can come and visit. My kids can't even come inside my door. I can't go to a wedding. I can't go to big functions. And, um, you know, my husband is pretty well doing the same thing I am to, in order to protect me. Now, to say that I would die if I got COVID, I don't really know. I could be like anyone else and just get a cold, or I could. But that is a risk that I'm not willing to take. So I don't know where we as Newfoundlanders are always so far behind everybody else. We needn't be. Uh, that's for sure. You know, and this, I think it's kind of the point I was trying to make off the top is it doesn't hit everybody the same. It would be exactly. much different for you than it would be for me. You know, so for folks who just will relentlessly come after me telling me it's only a cold or the survival rate, look, if we're just going to bench it on whether or not I survive, That's a strange way to look at things. You know, it might not kill me, but it might make me awful ill. It might also make me ill enough that I transmit it to folks around me who are not uh, robust with their immune system, maybe immunocompromised, maybe older, may have underlying health conditions. So we've really just got to stop pretending that it's a one-size-fits-all here. It's a different virus for different people based on who they are, what they're feeling, their age, and everything else that we've known throughout this. So stop telling me it's just a cold, and stop telling me that there's nothing else to worry about, because there might be, depending on 
on who the person is. Like your husband, like your friends, like the family members or friends who have lost loved ones you couldn't go to the funeral or the wedding or whatever the case may be. So we've got to just be more aware of the fact that it's different for different people. Don't be so bloody harsh and judgmental about everyone because there's a different strain that hits different people different ways. That's just the, that's the end of the story on that one. And I don't know how people haven't been able to wrap their mind around that. I don't know, but just listening to you this morning gave me a little bit of hope that someone understands. And the fact that a lot of people like myself, transplant recipients, don't even realize how compromised they really are because it's not really publicized. And it can only help this program and listeners when people like yourself talk about not only what's available here or not available here, but just the fact that so many differences are part of the conversation. To boil it down to summary declarations like it's nothing to worry about or it's going to kill me, there's gray areas and variables at play here. Let's include all of those so that we can have a more well-rounded, mature, realistic conversation versus where we find ourselves now in this societal tug-of-war of big declarations on one side or the other, which are, generally speaking, not helpful anyway, but I think is really becoming a big problem here. Beyond what we've seen in the last six months, 12 and 18 months, let's just try to be a little bit more understanding about the differences that we all have. Right. Thank you. I'm glad you made time for the show. Thank you very much. All right. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, and look, I'm not being preachy. I don't have the answers. I have no idea. But I think it's just curious that since I contracted it, it's funny how I th- look. And I didn't get so sick that I couldn't do a damn thing. That's not what I said at all. I was in bed for a couple of days. The headache was awful. The cough was relentless. The throat was sore. Stuffed up, bit of a heavy chest. But I'm going to be fine, I think. I sure hope I will be. But what happened to me might not happen to you. The people that I am exposed to may be okay, but someone in your world, your life, your family, your friends might not be. That's the issue here. That's been lost on so many. So, anywho, let's keep going. It's the fifth anniversary of Junior Miss Hanel, is my understanding. Join us on the line is Sabrina Jenkins. Morning, Sabrina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's nice to chat with you again. Happy to have you on the show. Um, yeah, so as you said, this year is our fifth anniversary for Junior Miss Newfoundland and Labrador, um, and we'll also be crowning our 17th Miss Teen Trinity Conception now in September. Um, we're really excited to be able to provide this opportunity again. Uh, we did have one year, of course, where we didn't, um, so we're really excited to be able to do this once again. So for anyone who doesn't know anything about us, um, this is a chance for young preteen girls in Newfoundland and Labrador and teens in Trinity Conception to get together. Um, they come together for a whole weekend of activities and confidence building exercises, public speaking training, um, different seminars, games, and have lots of fun. Um, the weekend ends with a crowning gala where one girl is crowned Miss Teen Trinity Conception. And this year we'll have our newest title holder be crowned the fifth Junior Miss Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so we're really excited about that. So Junior Miss NL is open to girls age 10 to 13. So this year that would be girls born between 2008 and 2012. Um, and Miss Teen Trinity Conception is open to girls in the Trinity Conception area um, from 13 to 18. So we are currently accepting applications, and the deadline is coming up now on July 31st. So anyone who's interested can reach out to us. They can check us out on our website. It's tcpageants.com. Um, they can check us out on Facebook. Both Junior Miss Newfoundland and Labrador and Miss Teen Trinity Conception have Facebooks. 
Uh, they can email us. It's info at tcpageants.com. Or they can call us here at the head office at 709-573-0685. So I'm going to ask the obvious. You know, people think the time for what they'll call beauty pageants has come and gone, but they've evolved like everything else in this world. This is not beauty for young girls. There's all sorts of different life skills and socialization and things where the pageant world has changed. Unfortunately, when we look at television, we see the the thrust and parry of the overwhelming helicopter parents and the little girls out there, you know, strutting their stuff full of makeup. That's not what we're talking about here. Paint the picture. No, absolutely not. Um, so... With our organization, um, we have tried very hard in the last um, 18 years to try to change the perceptive perception of pageants. Um, you do see the little girls and tiaras on TV. Um, people do see Miss Universe on TV. Um, but what they don't see is the stuff that kind of leads up to and follows that one night of a gala. Um, so with us, we take girls for an entire weekend. They come to us on a Friday, and the gala happens on a Sunday. So they learn things like public speaking training. We give them interview training because they do have to do a, a small interview with judges. Um, so these are life lessons that they're going to need. So no, a 10-year-old might not look now and say, I need to know how to do an interview for a job. But getting to do those things makes you able when you are 14, 15, 16 and able to get a job. You are so much easier to sit down in an interview room and have a chat with those people who are interviewing you, learning those little skills that you will need, learning things like public speaking. Um, it's something that's kind of important, especially nowadays. And with Junior Miss Newfoundland and Labrador, we've partnered with um, the Shriners here in Newfoundland. So each girl has their own chance to raise some funds and do some volunteering. And then we actually present a check to the Shriners organization each year. Uh, we have raised, I believe it's somewhere around $25,000 um, in the last four years. Um, so we'll do that again this year. And it goes to kids who are here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So the girls are also learning things like what you can do individually to fundraise, but what happens when you come together in a big group and how each little thing you do comes together to help um, these organizations. So it's not just, yes, people see the girls on the stage and all the pretty part of it, but there's so much more. That's just the few hours at the very end where we crown somebody. There's so much more that goes into that whole weekend and so much more that goes into the girls who win because they do travel the province and they do represent um, their age groups and they go to functions and events. Um, so it's a lot more than what people just kind of see that goes into it. And there's nothing wrong with wishing for world peace either. <laughs> I couldn't hesitate. I couldn't resist. Pardon me. Uh, it's good to have you on, Sabrina. Hopefully it's a great event this go around for both of these particular uh, events. And I appreciate you making time for us this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. So there's a lot more to it. I mean, between some leadership and public speaking and self-confidence and meeting new friends, I mean, what's wrong with that? Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll speak with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Keith, you're on the air. Good morning, How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? Not bad. I hope you're getting me uh, clear because uh, I got the phone in the car and the Bluetooth is on, so I didn't know what to turn up first, the radio or the phone. So <laughs> I didn't well, let's. I think we can hear you fairly clear. You go right ahead. Yeah, okay. I rang about my concern and my issue with the downtown parking for, the, uh, for all the decks that are out. I'm a handicapped person. 
and I happen to be 79 years of age. And I've closed that area down there, and there isn't a darn handicapped parking place I can find. They've totally forgot. St. John's have totally forgot the handicapped people when it comes to uh, uh, going for a little stroll down on Water Street. Now, I can walk, but my walking is limited to uh, maybe 100 yards at a time. Eh? So that, that's my concern this morning. There's, you know, immediately when the pedestrian mall became a thing, uh, the first reaction for most was, oh, this is really welcoming. This looks like it's a great idea. But we very, very quickly uh, figured out that there was plenty of concerns regarding mobility and access points. So they got dealt with. But that's only one thing if you're trying to access a restaurant deck or what have you. But there's also the inability to navigate some of the sidewalks because of the way some of the decks are built and access points have been removed. There's also the possibility for some of the parking spaces that were designated for blue zones have gone by the wayside. So you know better than I, Keith. Give us just a round number. What would have been available, say, between Harvey's and Water Street West versus what's there now, the numbers of blue zones and opportunities for you to park? Well, uh, I've cruised Water Street quite often there, and if you take all of Water Street and all of Duckwood Street, uh, I'd be hard-pressed to find any more than six places. That's that's a total of uh, water st- because of the way it's blocked off now. Now, what I would like to see is perhaps the uh, west end of Water Street. The council would know better than I would for sure. But if they could cut off one half, a section of one half, and put power, put uh, diagonal parking in, uh, so you could get uh, maybe uh, six to twelve cars there. That would greatly help the handicapped people. Now, you don't cut off the whole street. You only cut off one half of it where you want that parking. And uh, uh, there's always people down there uh, by the uh, by the entrances and that, so they could certainly uh, help with the parking uh, situation. But it would enable me and many other handicapped people uh, who can't walk a great distance to at least have a chance to go down and enjoy Water Street, maybe go and have a beer or whatever. Once you're able to find a spot to park, if you're lucky enough to get one of the six, how is it for navigating water, whether it be the pedestrian mall or otherwise? Well, it's a difficult walk. If you can't, if you if you can get a place uh, uh, on Duckworth, sort of sort of parallel to uh, the stores down there. Now I'm old. I'm forgetting all the stores that are down there. But do you know what I mean? Opposite yep. all the uh, law offices, we'd say on Water Street. Uh, I could probably manage that, but you can never get a place to park down there, and not after uh, four in the afternoon. Certainly not on the weekends. So if they can make access to handicap directly on Water Street and give it a small section for diagonal parking within within the uh, the uh, deck area, uh, that would enable people wheelchair accessibility and uh, and that kind of stuff. But it's terrible that they haven't considered handicapped people uh, for this for this event on Water Street. Now this isn't only a St. John's thing. This this street is open to all of the world. I happen to be a Mount Pearl taxpayer, but I can still talk about something that they boast down there that's uh, so great, you know. 
Absolutely. Uh, and I think a lot of this gets lost in the shuffle. I think, now it's easy enough for me to say, I think we're doing a better job in recent years about understanding it. Like if I'm in a business, I'm running a business or own a business, I'm recognizing the fact that 90, or pardon me, 20% of my potential customers need some accommodations made, whether it be mobility or otherwise. And for me to ignore that, I'm actually just doing the, my business a disservice. Then we look at things like universal design. You build it right the first time, it's better for access for all. It costs you less in the long run as opposed to going back to the drawing board and doing renovations or whatever the case may be. So I think more and more people are taking the time to look at the world a little bit differently to understand what accommodations and access and accessibility looks like. Well, at least I hope we are. Uh, you mentioned something there that reminded me of a, a comment that was made many years ago. Uh, apparently, the uh, when elections are held, I don't know about municipal elections, but I know federal and provincial, over 50% or maybe over 60% of the voters are seniors. And it's time for the uh, it's time for the uh, for the uh, people to recognize that we have a very large senior population here in Newfoundland, and it's time they got off their butts and did something for us. Sure, uh, you know the the seniors voting group has been the largest for years and years and years. But now, curiously, in the last federal election, millennials made up the biggest, uh, the largest voting block. But still, a significant number of voters provincially and federally are seniors. Of course, they are, and they have different needs based on a variety of different factors in their life than others do. So, it's a fair point you make there, Keith. Anything else you'd like to say before we move on to another caller? Something we were talking about earlier reminded me, I were talking about speed bumps. Now, there happens to be a narrowing of the road. They put in one of these narrowing sidewalks of the road down by the, uh, the church on the bottom of Longs Hill. Now, that's the most dangerous thing I've ever seen. If you're coming up there on a foggy night, you're going to roll up over that sidewalk and somebody is going to be killed. Now, somebody told me that's a university concept. Well, it's time for the university to get their act together. I'm not so sure, so sure it works. There's one not too far from where I live. It just means cars pass each other closer together versus anybody slowed down. I know the intention, and it makes sense as a concept, but whether or not it's working, I think, is another thing. Uh, Keith, appreciate your time this morning. I wish you well. Thank you, buddy. You look after yourself, and I hope you have a nice sunny day once you get out of the station. <laughs> I hope the same. Thanks a lot, man. Right on, buddy. Bye-bye. Take care. There we go. There's Keith, some of the concerns. You know, it is worth all of our while to look at, you know, it's easy enough to say, well, if it accommodates me, that's good enough for me, right? Looking out for number one. But even for business owners, if somewhere in the neighborhood, 20% of your potential customers require you to think a little differently about how they can access your business, be patrons of your business, boy, that seems like a pretty wise approach to a profitable business model, doesn't it? And this is not just about dollars and cents, but sometimes if we boil it back to that, it changes the ability for people to all of a sudden say, oh, okay, now I get it. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Bob's in the queue to talk about some of the healthcare workers that are in the province that have come from Ukraine. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to Bob. Bob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Patty, I've got I've got a concern. Um, you know, you hear about the shortage of um, doctors in Newfoundland, of of course, all over the country. But um, 
And and you hear about uh, how concerned our politicians are um, about attracting doctors and retaining doctors and how hard they work um, to, um, to attract doctors and to retain doctors in the province. The other day I'm listening to the news and there's this doctor that comes from the Ukraine and get this, they have to phone a politician? Really? Patty... <laughs> What happened to the bureaucrats? What happened to the people that are working at Eastern House? Why can't they get in touch with them? Why can't... I mean, I don't know what the process is for the transition between doctors coming from another country and and uh, coming to Newfoundland. But really, I mean, we're we're starving for doctors here. I've heard I've heard it referred to as a crisis. So why can't why can't you know Eastern Health get involved and contact these people rather than having to call the Minister of Health or the Premier of the Province? They're doing a the hiring. Well, there's a couple of things on that front, Bob. This is just me looking from the outside. I think some of the conversation that they've had with whether it be Minister Osborne or calling the Premier's office is when you go down that path, you hope to get some public attention given to this issue. I know full well that the process does not involve a politician if you're looking to get the accreditation exam, but it's hard to access it apparently, and it's very costly. So the same story I read in British Columbia this morning is a fellow who's from India. He's a doctor. He worked for eight years in India. He's been in this country for, I think, seven or eight years working in a call center, trying to get through to get the exam to be able to afford the exam and consequently get his accreditations transferred to practice. So I'm sure that the proper contact point is not the politician. It's just that sometimes you might get some public attention given to the issue when the politician's put on the spot. Because if I asked anyone out there uh, listening to name the faces of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, they don't know because they're sort of nameless faces, umbrella organization, whereas everybody knows who the premier is, everybody knows who Minister Osborne is or Minister Haggy or otherwise. So I think that's the plan or the play behind it okay i'm just i'm just concerned that you know the politicians are taking over are they micromanaging this um and um you know you, you bring up a, a valuable point there patty i don't know what the transition is like i said um, from other countries to this country but the thing is we can't we can't be jostling these people around and saying no. well you know you got to call me or you got to call this guy or or really you know, that really brings out a frosted side in me because, you know, you hear every day about the shortage of doctors and um, how overworked the staff is at uh, at the hospitals in Newfoundland and, and doctors leaving and some places without even a doctor. Um, I, I think we should be more proactive. And, and in saying that, um, I mean, I haven't heard anything out of Newfoundlanders. Why aren't the Newfoundlanders getting up in arms and saying, listen, do something about this other than having to call a politician? Well, uh, maybe I'm in a unique position, but I certainly hear lots of it, and rightfully so, understandably so. I mean, just look at Fargo Islands. The first time in centuries they haven't had a family doctor living on the island. There's something to that. And with the accreditation piece, you're right. We need to fast-track it. We need to streamline the process, all the while being mindful of the fact that we have to ensure that not only doctors, any healthcare professional that wants to practice here is up to Canadian grades and Canadian standards. I get that to be true. I had a look around uh, maybe yesterday, 
paid for, I can't remember. How about Ukrainian med schools, of which there are tons. I was really surprised to find out how many there are. The number one ranked med school in Ukraine, I think, is called the Tarashevchenko National uh, Med School. It's at the University of Kiev. But it's the 813th ranked med school in the world. So there's maybe some shortcomings, maybe some of the Canadian standards that have not been taught and met and accredited to these doctors. doesn't mean they're not up to the task. just means that we have to make sure that their accreditation is properly adjudicated and transferred. But it shouldn't take thousands of dollars and years after years because if we are in dire need for healthcare pros, let's see how much we can do to help them, to get out in front of this. So when we're in Poland and Warsaw, vetting potential newcomers to the country and to the province. If a doctor is part of that churn, let's with them and to help them put them in touch with the college, understand what the process is, start it before they even get on a plane from Warsaw so that we get ahead of the curve as opposed to the frustration that they obviously and rightfully feel right now. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Patty. Appreciate yours, Bob. Good conversation. Thank you. Take care. Look, I mean, it's a big one, isn't it? And, you know, I think we'll hyper-focus on, uh, well, pardon me, we will focus in on Ukrainian refugees at this point because it is one of the big notable worldwide international stories. But the college in British Columbia thinks that they've got thousands of medically trained professionals living in BC that are not practicing in healthcare, doing a variety of different jobs. So whether it be chartered professional accountants or healthcare workers or lawyers or engineers or whatever, when they make their home here and there's need for their services, regardless of the industry, let's try to find a way to do it quicker, to do it better, albeit not just, you know, throwing caution to the wind and saying, no, it doesn't matter if you got a medical degree from wherever at Sumy State University in Ukraine, come on aboard, do it right, but let's be better about it. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to one of the hopeful junior Miss NL pageants and the upcoming event, and that's Jayla Harris. Good morning, Jayla. You're on the air. Good morning. I just heard Sabrina great to have you on the show. What? I said it's great to have you on the show. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go right ahead. I just heard Sabrina on talking about the Newfoundland and Labrador pageant, and I just wanted to call in to also encourage young females in our province to apply. Last year I was accepted, and I was crowned with the Junior Miss Leadership Award for raising the most mo- amount of money for Shriners, and I also received the People's Choice Award. The pageant helped me gain such self-confidence, and I learned so much there. But the friendships I made topped it all off. So I want to say to any young girls out there in our province, don't be shy or afraid to try something new. Just be who you are, because this allows us the opportunity to show our true colors. Last year, I was the only girl from outside of eastern part of the island, so I would love to see more girls from the central and western part attend this year. That's terrific, and I'm sure that's a very positive message in many of their ears. Jayla, what was behind your decision to participate in Junior Miss NL yourself? Did you have some family encourage you to do it, some of your friends? What happened? Um, I just wanted to show other young girls to show their true colors. Terrific. And inside the, the weekend with the other participants, what sort of activities did you do to bring forward the Leadership Award? I know it's about raising money in that particular case, but what are some of the takeaways that made you a better leader, maybe more confident as a public speaker? Give us an idea about exactly what happened while you were together with the fellow contestants. Well, the interview and the public speaking. And how has that changed you, whether it be as a friend or a leader or a student or whatever the case may be? Um, it made me more confident. 
Yeah, good for you. It's important, right? Because I would imagine amongst you and your friends, you'll have some who are willing to get up and speak in front of the class, some who are really hesitant to do so. So sometimes all it takes is the first step, isn't it, to participate in Junior Miss NL, to participate in some of these activities, because many people realize, just like it happened for me, we're afraid of the unknown, but as soon as we take a chance, as soon as we do it, and we all realize that it's everybody's common fear to do these types of things as a leader and a public speaker, but once you do it, you realize, hey, I can do this. Sometimes all it takes is a bit of encouragement, isn't it? Yeah. Well, congratulations on being a participant and for winning the Leadership Award. I think that's brilliant. Uh, going to continue on with these types of events, whether it be onto the senior ranks of Miss NL or anything like that? Hopefully. Yeah, good for you. What have you been up to all summer? Lots of sports. I'm involved with the softball team and the soccer team and the basketball team and the ball hockey and spring spins. <laughs> so not much. Oh, I, I have a lot. It sounds like it. And what grade are you going into? I'm going to grade seven. Terrific. At some point, you're going to figure out which sport you're the, either the best at or you love the most or have the most friends. If you had to pick one today, I don't mean to put you on the spot, if you had to pick one, which one do you think you want to chase into, say, for instance, being a varsity athlete or something like that? Swimming. I've been swimming since I was two. Oh, is that right? What's your swim club? Bluefin. Springdale Bluefin. Terrific. What's your favorite discipline? Crawl, backstroke? Front crawl. Front crawl. Yeah, I mean, that's the one where we all try to hit the water. We can all learn that one a little bit easier as opposed to to be some sort of expert as the grade six in the breaststroke or some of the more difficult butterflies or what have you. So keep up the great work as a leader in your community and amongst your friends. Congratulations once again, and good luck with your sports. Thank you for having me. Happy to have you on, Jayla. Enjoy the rest of your summer. You too. Bye. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Shayla Harris, former competitor in the Junior Miss NL, Leadership Award winner, and you can tell that's amazing. Never cease to amaze me. You know, you meet with it, whether it be in person or here on the show, and I encourage more and more young voices, whether it be to talk about the issues of the day, encourage your classmates or your friends to get involved in one thing or another. That's been a benefit to you. It's great to hear from young people. And just listen to how busy Jayla is with all the different sports she's competing in, a competitive swimmer on top of that. And, man, to be a competitive swimmer takes an enormous amount of effort. We have a lot of great swimmers in the province. You know, it's not just the Owen Dailies of the world competing in the NCAAs. We have tons of great swimmers it's the early morning hours and the amount of uh, hours uh, the early morning hours and the time spent in the pool to actually be competitive enough to swim in the blue fins team compete on the provincial level compete on the atlantic and national level so good luck to jayla throughout the summer her and everybody else and if you want to tell us about what you're up to or pass along a positive message like jayla did you can do it right after this don't go away come back let's go back to line number one say good morning to tom tom you're on the air Good morning, Patty, and welcome back. Thanks very much. And thanks for taking my call. Patty, uh, one thing I, 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 I just wanted to mention, because it's something that confounds me about the doctor shortage. Like anyone who listens to the news knows that there's, you know, it's not only in Newfoundland, uh, almost all the provinces are having the same kind of an issue. Uh, I mean, emergency rooms in, uh, in in Ontario closed. Some emergency rooms closed there last week, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. I know they closed over in Nova Scotia as well. So, like, 
what? I know there was a, a, a doctor shortage before COVID, but it seems like COVID has exacerbated the situation. Like, so what is after happening to cause a whole country to be short the way we are uh, with doctors? It's an excellent question. I think what's happened is the pandemic has shone a light on what was already happening. You know, in this province, it's not a new story. We've been talking about the need to bring in more doctors, nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, social workers, pharmacists. We've known this for quite a while. But now, all of a sudden, what has happened is if we knew this seven years ago, all of the doctors that were approaching the age of retirement are there. So the combination of that, the fact that they're so highly mobile, maybe have seen greener pastures on the other side where they're whether that be in other parts of Canada or other parts of the world, I think it's something that's just naturally evolved, and I don't think it's new. I think we're assuming that COVID has all of a sudden brought this to bear when I think this was in play well before 2020. Well, yes, I'm pro- yeah, probably, yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, but God, it just seems to have gotten so much worse in the last, you know, since COVID. I understand what you're saying. It's just mind-boggling that we just, you know, as a country, got ourselves into this kind of a pickle. Yeah, I, no argument, once again, coming from me. I think there's been long concern, you know, like, again, if you go back to how the pollsters conduct themselves around election time, the concerns would be the obvious ones. Jobs and taxes and health care and criminal jobs, all the way down the line. But now when health care has been so keenly focused on, I think we're seeing more of the cracks in health care because everybody... But everybody is looking very focused at healthcare, whether it be primary care, whether it be all the way through long term care. We've just learned a lot. And unfortunately, it took something like a pandemic. It took something like the closure of emergency rooms and the distribution of patients far afield from their own home community. These things have probably been in play, but we didn't give it as much thought as usual because unless you were sick and in the healthcare churn, it might not have been your number one concern, whereas it might have been your job or your taxes or the environments or whatever the case may be. So I think we've learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Maybe, unfortunately, had to wait for something like this to see the shortcomings in the system, see the shortcomings in long-term care. But now we understand a lot more about it. What's also curious to me is that we've got more doctors and more nurses working in this province than ever before. So I think that extends the conversation to the prevalence of chronic illness, the age of the population, things we knew were happening, things we knew that were coming, but yet we just hoped that the system wouldn't show the cracks that it inevitably showed during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, Patty, uh, true, true. Uh, Again, just, uh, you know, thinking about it, it boggles your mind. But listen, uh, I was was listening to the news, uh, the uh, CTV Atlantic News one morning last week, and they gave a statistic, which I think is interesting. If we do it, I've never heard them do it. And what they did, and first let me say, like, I I heard the... uh, the uh, opposition uh, medical, uh, you know, uh, buddy, talking the other day, and he was talking about, you know, how we should be uh, recruiting more doctors and all that kind of stuff. And he he mentioned Nova Scotia and said, well, I mean, look at Nova Scotia. They've uh, recruited blah, 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 so many doctors this week, this year. But however... The statistics that they gave on the news paints a little kind of a different picture, and it's kind of misleading when the opposition plays politics with health care. In Nova Scotia on the news, 
they said, they gave a statistic and said, so far this year, now the numbers I'm going to quote are not, you know, what I can't remember numbers, but anyway, they recruited X number of doctors. They, uh, they lost X number of doctors. And then there was another statistic. So, and then the bottom line was, we now have this number of doctors, and we're still X number of doctors uh, behind where we should be. I think that's really enlightening to the public, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I'd love to see that kind of statistics come out of our problems. couple of things. So... Central health has been one of the key focus areas because of all the, the interruptions in emergency rooms and what have you. And these are just round numbers when I spoke with Dr. Jared Butler some months back. And there was a doctor shortage, like there is in all the regional health authorities. And then the government would say, well, we hired 39 new doctors. And I think that was the number. But at the exact same time, 45 left. So we're still down six. So to just try to paint it that furthers whether it be your own perspective or your political agenda is just not helping matters. We need to know what the net number is. If we hired 39 but we lost 45, then we're back six. We're not, we're not further ahead 39. So unless we use all the real numbers that can be verified, then we're potentially playing games where games do not belong. Healthcare is not a political issue, nor should it be. Now, unfortunately, it's nature of the beast in politics where there will be opportunities to make political hay or political games. But let's just put all the numbers on the table. Hiring 39 is the good news. Losing 45 is the bad news. If we can't have the bad news and the good news, then we don't have a real conversation. We just have a, a lot of bluster. Absolutely right. That's, that's, that's. And, Patty, before I go, I just want to make one comment about, like, foreign doctors. In this case, like, I think, you know, we're talking about Ukrainian doctors now. And, God, yes, we'd love to have every doctor that we can get our hands on. But holy moly, you know, like... I wouldn't want to be the administration that's in power if down to, if we take doctors and have them out caring for patients when they maybe, you know, I just say maybe, but maybe due diligence wasn't done and something happens whereby a patient either gets seriously maimed, hurt, or dies because of it. I tell you, I wouldn't. So, like, as bad as we need them, I think, and I have to accept, I think, that the government and the people uh, that are recruiting them are doing due diligence, and we can't rush that. Plus, I don't know if the conversation really belongs in Confederation building, because the processes, the access to exams, the cost of the exams, the paperwork with the locum, we really need a bit of guidance from elected officials, but we need the colleges of physicians and surgeons, the medical associations, province to province to province, to collectively come up with what is in our best interest collectively. Not just what's best for doctors, not what's just best for nurse practitioners, but what works for the healthcare system. So that's where it belongs. It might take, in Indeed, some guidance where the buck stops on the ministers, that's those types of things. But the people that understand it the best, and this is not a slight against Tom Osborne, but I would imagine uh, Susan Young or the leadership at the College of Physicians and Surgeons, they understand the process. They know why it's in place. They know where maybe it's too long or too cumbersome or too expensive. Let them be the leaders we need them to be as well, because we can cry up and down and scream 
to we're blue in the face at a politician. They may or may not understand the process enough to make appropriate adjustments at the political level. We need this to be done inside of health care. I know everyone thinks that every buck stops on every minister's desk, but when you have operations like the college and the NLMA, let's get more guidance coming from them. I'd love to speak with the college today to tell me what's in place to transfer accreditation from a Ukrainian doctor and an Indian doctor and American doctor to operate and participate in the healthcare system in this country. Where is it too long? Where can improvements be made? Because they know. They're the people that know. They're intimately involved in the process day in and day out. Yeah, I'd love to know that too, absolutely. One way, and before I go, one in one way, if there's any way that we should be cutting red tape and whatnot, in my opinion, I saw a show last night, uh, Mexican workers, uh, great Mexican workers doing a fine job at a fish plant in uh, yep. Gulfstown. And, uh, like, you know, these are great people. They're hard workers, and they want to stay and everything else like that. I mean, we need people. And these people, it hurts me that these people want to stay, but yet they're going to have to go back to Mexico because, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're here on a work permit. And they got to go back and start, if they want to come permanently, and start the process all over again. I mean, God, if, if the politicians are going to get involved in anything, get involved and cut that kind of stuff by saying, well, look, if you're here, maybe we can shortcut, uh, if you really want to stay, maybe we can re- we can shortcut the procedure, you know, to, to get you to stay. Yeah, that one boils down to a federal issue, because that temporary foreign workers program is absolutely federal, but you're right. If you come and you have an opportunity, you have a job, Maybe there's a question about seasonality of some of these jobs, but if someone is willing to stay, has some skills that they can offer to the community and to society, then understanding that is a big part of just saying it's not all about bureaucracy. It's about a bit of common sense. And, you know, I know it becomes an unwieldy behemoth if you're trying to judge every single case and every single temporary foreign worker on a standalone basis. But when the country and the province in particular has these needs and we can't fill them, Figuring it out is probably an excellent idea once again. I really appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything else this morning? No, my friend. Thanks, Patty, for listening to me. Good to have you on. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. There we go. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, Mike's in the queue to talk about wind power. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Hey, hey Patty. Good morning. Welcome back, Patty. Uh, I Thanks hope very much. Break. Although you're sounding a little bit chilled up there this morning, so I hope you're fighting the results of a cold or something. But uh, I hope I'm actually, have- unfortunately, I had a very nice break, but uh, the unfortunate reality is I have COVID. And so I was offered another additional three days, unfortunately, but I'm on the mend, I think, anyway. <laughs> well, I hope you get past it. It, it could be a, a, a real old difficult battle. Uh, and by the way, Linda Swain and uh, Tim Powers uh, did admirable fill-ins for you, I must say, so you can feel confident in that. Uh, i also like to welcome back Alex Newhook, by the way. Uh, you know, I see him downtown there, I think, last week, um, and uh, we'll see him in August dragging around a big old cup around. I think it's called a Stanley Cup. <laughs> That's not bad for a young man like him. Uh, not bad. Great job. He did a great job with the, uh, with the uh, Colorado Avalanche. 
Patty, uh, my call to you, uh, I, I apologize. I missed a, a good part of your program because I was in a Zoom meeting, and who knew that I couldn't put them on hold while I was trying to turn over and listen to you. <laughs> they didn't even understand that. People down in Florida, that, that's the way it goes. Uh, anyway, um, I, I'm calling about the wind energy development, Patty. Where uh, you've been on a break and a bit sick there. You may not have kept up on the media recently, but there's a very significant uh, undertaking on the go now focused on wind energy that has never been there before. Um, as late as yesterday, President Biden in the United States, uh, you know, cited that climate change is a major, massive uh, priority issue and uh, spoke with, speaking about wind energy, they're committing billions. Canada, of course, is into it. And so you can be sure that the backwash alone from the American initiatives will put billions into it from the federal government and the provincial government. So there's a lot of money going to be floating around in there uh, on wind energy development. Patty, um, I know there's been a lot of activity in one part of Newfoundland out towards Fort Peninsula on wind energy development. Uh, some people with some fairly deep pockets have been out there. That's great. We need business and interested in this. I got no problem with this. I, I think they're trying to formulate policy so much that they actually took 10 people from the Port of Port area and flew them up to Ontario to have a look at the wind energy plants up there. And, uh, and, and I guess they're probably wanting to done them a little bit, trying to impact policy, I suspect. Uh, so there must be a lot of lot on the go in a pen. There's also substantial, and these are just rumors floating around town, but some very well-connected political people involved in it as well. Patty, what I would like to know is what's the potential return to the province in dollars? I know there's going to be some jobs, but in dollars to the province, you know, from this big, what will be a multi-billion dollar investment initiative coming on. What's going to be our take on this? What's the potential? I noticed that the province ca called a, um, a request for proposals, and they, they gave it something like less, 10 days or less than to be able to respond to it. So I'm just wondering, have you seen any of that? I, and I understand you've been away for a couple of weeks, so you may not have. But have you seen any uh, any information on that? Well, it's a good question. So, you know, we refer to some uh, common shared resources. Like the oil industry, we get the jobs, the corporate tax base, and royalties. In the fishery, we call it a common shared resource, but with the general return to the coffers and for the folks working outside the industry, it's basically just tax base and the revenue generated from those jobs, whether it be in the boats or in the plants. I think the same is going to come to bear with wind. So, you know, not every project is going to be the same, whether it be John Risley's proposal, or in the Port of Stephenville, whatever, or in Argentia, because they're going to be, by and large, creating hydrogen for export. So I think the return to the province will be jobs. You know, there might be some manufacturing capacity that can be created here to further some potential wind developments regarding hydrogen or otherwise, but I don't see a big revenue stream coming. How can we say that we own the wind? I think that's a tricky one. So I think the return is, generally speaking, jobs. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that anybody is going to come here and establish an, an undertaking because they love us. I think they're going to come here because they want to be here because of where we're positioned and the wind power we have. Now, you're right. We don't own the wind, and uh, uh, but we certainly do own the areas where this infrastructure for creating the wind power is going. We certainly do have that. 
And uh, yeah, we're going to lease some. We're going to lease them some land. The oil. What's that? Sorry. Well, we do. We we actually own the oil until we strike an agreement for exploration and production. You know, it sits inside our protected zone. We've extended that beyond 200 miles. It was prior to international agreements, which is why we probably owe someone some money for uh, the uh, Equinor find out there. So, But we do indeed have the opportunity to lease them some land. What that comes, what sort of revenue stream that creates, I don't know. Because like everything else in this world, we find ourselves in a spot where the companies know that they have access to land, have access to wind, have access to ports, which is a big upside for us. They also view the province as a, a province in need. And so they've got a lot of leverage. We've got the land and the wind. But they also have the money and the jobs. So I don't know how expensive the land leases will be, but I don't know if there's anything coming beyond tax base creation, jobs, man- manufacturing, and otherwise, because there's not going to be any sort of royalty associated with how much hydrogen they produce, or at least I don't see it. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully there's all kinds of money, but I think it might not be as extensive as some people think it might be. Well, I, you know, and, and that's that's the big issue. I mean, we we have the ability. I'm sure these companies are not running here. These investors are not running here. They're running here for profit. That's what they're running here for. And I, I'm I'm concerned that there seems to be a focus on a very small group, or maybe even one group, to give them the leeway to go do this. When if we have such a valuable asset, and it is valuable, because they wouldn't be here trying to formulate policy and flying people in and out and this kind of stuff, unless they can make a lot of money. So I, sure. I don't know. Should we be out, Patty, and saying, hey, you know, give us some requests for proposals, not just this sh- shallow little thing that showed up the last couple of days and is going to be over in a week or so. Um, shouldn't we be out saying to all kinds of these wind energy, and they're, they're all over the states, they're all over Canada, developers and saying, come on in and have a look at us. And, and see what you can do for us. Uh, I, but my concern is, is this is going to get, and, and uh, you know, I used the word lightly, the bums rush is what a phrase we used to use in years gone by. I don't even know if it's still politically correct. But we used to get the bums rush, and everybody gets pushed through, you know, and there's policy being formulated and lobbying going on with ministers and stuff like that. God, I hope we've learned from that. Well, I don't. I mean, the province has been clear. The province has been fairly clear, though, Mike. We're not talking about putting money into these things. Now, will there be breaks on access to power? Will there be breaks on the land lease value? I don't know. But I don't know if there's a, you know, this is very much unlike, for instance, the mining industry, the oil industry, where there's a straight-up royalty associated with their exploration and their production, and maybe the creation of secondary and tertiary. There will be some hydraulic, or pardon me, some uh, electrolysis due to the access to water, access to wind, access to deep water ports. That makes us attractive, too. Not that just we have our cap in hand and we need whoever has a suitor to come to the province. I think there's all those things at play. But I think the big return is whatever the land value is in lease and whatever the jobs are created. Yep, yep. So it's, it's, I guess it's well put. It's, it's, you, you, you just use too many times to praise I don't know. Because we. my opinion is we can know and we should know and i don't see that happening at this point in time patty once again welcome back i know you probably have other people in the lineup there and uh, it's it's good to hear you there as uh, as recovering as you are i appreciate your time mike thank you okay bye bye i would know if i had dave's eye contact to be able to know whether i should go to the, whether or not i should go to the break but it seems to me <laughs> i just whispered him in my ear go to the break okay i'm going to the break don't go away Welcome back to the program. Well, if you've ever been banished, you'll understand the plea. 
You come a cry of curs whose breath I hate, as Rico thy rotten fence whose loves I prize. As the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air, I banish you, and here remain with your uncertainty. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Good morning. How's it going? Not too bad. How about you? Oh, very good. That was an excellent delivery, by the way. I'm very proud. <laughs> Thank you. And scene. Act three, scene three. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, I was just calling in today to uh, let folks in the area know that Shakespeare by the Sea is on this summer for the next few weeks with two main stage productions. And it's, uh, I know since the pandemic began, everyone's very hungry for entertainment and, and the actors are really hungry to uh, get back on stage and get into projects. So we are just another offering that we're hoping people will come out and, and enjoy. So is Coriolanus one of them? <laughs> It is. So Coriolanus is okay, our cool. uh, main stage Shakespeare, and that is on at the Rooms Fortis Amphitheater and Courtyard, uh, and tickets are available through the Rooms as well. Um, their tickets are general admission $25, $20 for students, seniors, and unwaged individuals. And uh, that's our Shakespeare offering for the summer. is directed by Mallory Fisher and assistant directed by Noah Shepard, who many VOCM listeners will know, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I didn't know that Noah was involved. Yes, yeah, and we uh, brought on Noah as a, a basically a, an assistant director with Mallory as a, a learning experience, and they've been great. It's been a really awesome summer for uh, a lot of new actors involved, a lot of returning actors that we haven't seen in a while, but um, the show is really, it's told in a modern Newfoundland sense, and a lot of it is about corruption, toxic masculinity, um, the people versus the governing bodies, which again, I'm sure many open line listeners can identify with. And so it's, uh, it's nothing to be afraid of in terms of the Shakespearean language. It's still very, it's told in a very relatable manner. And hopefully uh, your mother is more supportive than Volumnia. <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> anyway, great stuff is the first giggle I've had all day. So I really appreciate that. Give the folks the details, not only about this particular Shakespearean work, but where else they might be able to find and catch some Shakespeare by the sea. Absolutely. So in addition to Coriolanus, we have The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov. And this is our first time in a while doing a non-Shakespearean main stage show. Um, and that show opens on Saturday this week, and it plays normally Saturdays at 6 p.m., Sundays at 2 p.m. in the Bannerman Park Peace Grove. And that show is admission by donation. It is pay what you can. You can show up and give us however much you can afford to see the show. Uh, bring a chair, bring a blanket, bring a picnic, bring all your friends. And uh, that was directed by Azul Desang, uh, and it's a translation by Rory Malarkey for folks who are in the know. Um, but again, yeah, that's at the Bannerman, Peace, uh, Bannerman Park Peace Grove. And uh, Coriolanus will be at the Fortis Amphitheater and Courtyard at the Rooms, Fridays at 6 p.m. and Saturdays at 2 p.m. But all of that information is on our website, uh, shakespearebythesefestival.com. Uh, and slash 2022 will bring you to all the updated ticketing links and information. Thanks for this, Sandra. Go break some legs. Thanks very much. Hope to see everyone out. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. This is a great offering. Shakespeare by the Sea. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Grand today. How about you? Oh, I'm all right, I suppose. <laughs> I'm calling about the uh, bird problem we have here in Pine Lance. Pine Lance Beach. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we sit about four miles east of the Bird Rock. Or the Bird Island, we call Cape St. Mary's. And right now, right. since last Wednesday or Thursday, we were after having about a thousand dead seabirds on a beach. Wow, because I read a news story, maybe it was last night, there was something like 50-odd murres and 10 or 12 gannets they found dead. But you were saying there was upwards of 1,000 dead birds on the beach? Since last week, since a week and a half, yes. Oh, right man. now we got 300, maybe 400 plus down there. Right now every four foot you walk is a dead murre or a gannet or a puffin. Uh, the beach is just full of them. We're not allowed to walk on the beach now, according to the Environment Canada. We got to have gloves to pick them up. We can't touch them. And I was telling the environment yesterday, and they were supposed to come out yesterday evening or this morning. But I called in this morning, and they're still working out the logistics before they can come out. The same thing when we had whales wash up. I know there's a who's responsible here. I know there's an animal health division provincially, but all of this is guided by the Canadian Wildlife Cooperative. I can't remember exactly what it's called. So we don't even know who gets to make all the final calls. So are the representatives from both of those organizations in Point Lance? No, there's no one here in Point Lance. Oh, I, I, I really? called a gentleman this morning that fellow called me yesterday, and he said he got to make a decision in Cornerbrook. Well, well and good for Cornerbrook. Cornerbrook is not Point Lance. We got a beach here two kilometers long. All white sands, and we do have a lot of tourists this time of the year. Walking that beach with the youngsters and the dogs and swimming and this and that. Right now, there's nobody going to the beach. Not good enough. I'm familiar with Point Lance. It's a beautiful part of the province and a beautiful beach, of which people don't realize how many nice sandy beaches we have, whether it be Lumsden or where you're talking about in Point Lance. Uh, would you like to say anything else? Because it's on my list to maybe reach out to Dr. Montevecchi about this issue and see what the plan is for getting the birds cleaned up and reopening the beach. Well, I, I, Don, i got to say good luck to getting Manavecchi. I'm at the car on six times. You never call back. Okay, well, let's see what so we can do. Generally speaking... Pardon? No, I was just going to say, generally speaking, he accommodates the show when he can, so I'll ask uh, David Williams to send him a note. Yeah, but uh, they were supposed to be out here this morning, environment. now they get to work out logistics. So I don't know, what do you tell the tourists about going on the beach? General stay up, or we really don't know. Well, uh, for their own health, I would imagine the right thing is to, uh, you know, encourage them to not go down and to touch the dead birds. But I will do everything I can to have Mr. Uh, Dr. Montevecchi on tomorrow to give us some guidance, a better understanding, because it's been attributed to the avian flu. But cleaning it up is the most important thing to you. Yeah, just clean it up. Yes. Happy to do it. Little bit on, we got the dead walrus. I mean, Sunday. <laughs> a big one, too. Really? Really a wow. big one. He come ashore Sunday evening, yes, and he did. He, and he ran. What a home up yeah, I bet. Is it common to see a walrus in that part of the world? Because there was a walrus down in Middle Cove Beach not long ago, and I don't remember ever seeing a walrus around here. No, not, not a part of here anyway. He's not. And there's the disconnect again. I mean, remember there were a couple of years ago, we had a, a couple of uh, washed-up dead whales. And then there was the back and forth. Who's responsible? Who can do what? As opposed to the boys that are trawler say, well, I got a chain, and I can drag that whale out and sink him somewhere. But, you know, is it the province that takes the lead? Is it the municipalities understand who to go to first? The feds, the province, the who? Because we can't have dead walruses and dead whales on the beach and the stink that they provide. So, no. you know, we've got to get our act together because it's not going to be the last time it happens. <laughs> no, it's not going to be the last time. But this, this beach here now is in a, is in a real bad mess. But 
Okay, I'll see what I can hear from the province or the feds, and in particular from Dr. Montevecchi about what's happened to the birds. They think it's avian flu is the lar- uh, largest contributor, but we'll get to the bottom of it the best we can. Yeah, that's what they're saying, it's avian flu, so we're not allowed to. Yeah. So. Very good, thank you for your time. Thanks, Peter. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, it's the unfortunate reality, but, you know, the same thing happens time over time, right? Whether it be a walrus or a whale or what have you, they wash up and they're dead. They have to be removed. There's a certain amount of expertise required. And we'll have that, you know, who do I turn to? If I'm the mayor of one community or another, now what? Is it the province I'm dialing up, or am I calling Ottawa, or does anybody have an answer for me? And what do the residents need to know? Maybe on the safety front of what's happened to the birds, we can see if we get Dr. Montevecchi. And for the rest of it, we'll do the best we can dealing with the bureaucracy. All right. Pretty good show today. Big thanks to Tim and Linda for sitting in for me while I was away and dealing with the goal COVID. Uh, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.